Welcome to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast, a weekly conversation about mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. To get more information, visit the website at therapyforblackgirls.com. And while I hope you love listening to and learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for session 66 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. Today, I'm bringing you an incredible episode about everything you need to know about ADHD. And I'm joined by one of my favorite psychiatrists, Dr. Dawn Camila Brown. Dr. Brown is America's favorite ADHD expert, and she's also a double board certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. She is the owner, CEO, and sole practitioner at ADHD Wellness Center and has two private practice locations in Texas. She is a pioneer of the mental health movement and a nationally recognized ADHD coach, public speaker, author, and professional mentor. Dr. Brown was diagnosed with ADHD while in the final year of her child psychiatry fellowship program. Because of this, she personally understands the potential impact of this chronic, debilitating disorder, not only on affected individuals, but their families as well. Without quality management, this disorder can cause academic and work difficulties, poor self-confidence, and strained relationships. Dr. Brown believes that mental health professionals are essential in providing balanced and supportive information about ADHD, ensuring individuals and their families receive proper management recommendations that are effective. Dr. Brown is originally from Flint, Michigan. She earned her doctorate degree and completed her residency in general adult psychiatry in just three years at the St. Louis University School of Medicine. She furthered her education by completing an additional two-year fellowship in child and adolescent psychology at the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And a fun fact, Dr. Dawn is also my classmate from Xavier University of Louisiana, where we had lots of psych classes together. Dr. Dawn and I chatted about the symptoms of ADHD, why the diagnosis is often missed, how to know if your child might need to be evaluated, treatment for ADHD, and she clears up some common misconceptions about medication. If there's a light bulb moment for you during the episode or something you think others need to hear, please share it on social media using the hashtag TBG in session. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Dawn. You are so welcome. I am honored to be a guest on your show. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I am very excited to have you. So I am doing an entire series all about um, or including other guests who graduated from Xavier. So I'm very excited. I knew that I wanted to have you on um, to talk about all things ADHD, since that definitely is your specialty. 
Oh, wonderful. I love when Xavier and I get together. You know, yeah. it's, it's a wonderful, it's always a party. Um, but yes, Clearly. we love to share exciting news <laughs> and ventures what we're doing. So Right. <laughs> yeah. So can you start, Dr. Dawn, by telling us exactly what ADHD is? Sure. So ADHD is what we call a brain disorder. It's actually a disorder of the executive functioning. So executive functioning is how a person learns, how they um, memorize information, how they listen, um, how they process information. And it's in the frontal lobe of the brain. So it's kind of the where if you put your hand on your forehead, that's actually the main area that is impacted by ADHD. ADHD affects um, our attention. It affects our level of activity as well as our degree of impulse control. So if those areas, those three areas are impacted, usually on observation, you would find that a person may have difficulties in sitting still. They may appear very restless. Um, they may appear to daze off in space or not really pay close attention to you. They're not giving you that eye contact as well as the level of impulsivity. So these um, behaviors usually are kind of done where they kind of act before they think about what they're doing. So cutting people off, cutting people in front of line, answering for people, um, you know, those are some of the common impulsive um, behaviors that are commonly seen, particularly in children as well as adults. So those three areas are impacted. And so there are different types, correct, Dr. Dawn? That is correct. That is correct. There, there are actually three main categories that we identify that people have problems with when we discuss ADHD. Um, the first category is commonly found in kids and adolescents, and that's called the combined of, um, type. So that are, are kids who have problems with impulse control, hyperactivity, as well as inattention. And then the next type is the predominantly inattentive type, where I see most adults and fairly amount of females have, um, where they, you know, again, lose focus, not able to fo have sustained focus, or may appear to be dazed off in space. And then finally, the hyperactive impulsive type. Um, so these are individuals who can focus, but are very restless, and it's hard for them to kind of sit still for long periods of time. Okay, so I think that there are likely a variety of different people listening. There may be some people listening who are wondering, oh, is this a concern for myself, people who maybe have been diagnosed, but there are likely also some parents who are listening um, who may wonder, like, is this something that I should get my child checked out for? So do you have any ideas about, um, like, what kinds of things might a parent be seeing that would result in them wanting to get their child evaluated? Definitely. You know, one thing to keep in mind as a parent is that kids are very active. They're very rambunctious. They're curious. They can be very impulsive. So these are natural tendencies um, that you will commonly see kids possess. Okay. What we find in ADHD is that it's recurrent. So it's, it's, it's these common symptoms that I just discussed that are consistent and they occur in all environments and they interfere with the child's functioning. So usually when I see children in my office, it they have a history of, of, of getting in trouble for not staying seated in their seat for over a period of time. They may actually cut 
you know, other kids in line, not follow directions, become very forgetful, um, show a decline in grades. So as you can tell, you know, these are actually interfering with their ability to do well in school. And, and, and as I stated before, they occur in all environments. So not only in school, but you also see at home where parent has to constantly remind their child to clean up their room or, you know, remind them to follow their directions. Um, you know, they, they commonly leave things around and, and, and basically not put things into place in their respectful place. So it, it's, it's common symptoms that recur most days out of the week. Okay. And what does that evaluation look like, Dr. Dawn? I'm sure that there are lots of different kinds of evaluations, like the way you would do an evaluation would be different from what I would do as a psychologist. So could you talk a little bit about what the evaluation process is for making the diagnosis of ADHD? Yes, you know, that, that's a very good question. And that's, that's a question that many um, parents or even adults are not aware. So one is that despite the fact that, you know, you being a psychologist um, and I being a psychiatrist, yes, we may actually um, engage um, the community with different types of evaluations. Even with a child psychiatrist, which I am, um, we actually do evaluations differently as well. So not two child psychiatrists are alike as far as how they evaluate ADHD, but being an expert in ADHD, I actually make sure that everyone that I see has to have some type of objective testing. What that means for kids is that commonly I use what we know as rating, behavior rating scales. Um, Vanderbilt Connors are common rating scales that are used in my clinical practice where they are asking a number of questions in areas of activity, attention, impulse control. They also, for example, the Vanderbilt also contains areas that may point to risk factors for anxiety, depression, um, learning disabilities, conduct, behaviors. And so these scales are given to teachers, they're given to your child's parents, um, and any other caregivers that are close in touch with the child, including coaches. It's very important that we have any adult person that is involved that has a close connection that can actually be able to answer these questions because it's actually going to give us the information that we need and how the child is performing in different areas of his or her life. So that is what I commonly use for kids. Um, in addition to adults, I actually have um, a, a computerized exam. It's about a 20, 30-minute computerized test that I actually have in my office called ATOVA. It's used here in Great Britain. And it's actually looking at inattention as it relates to an individual's ADHD. So these are two common objective tests that I give. But there is not one single test for ADHD. And that's what a lot of um, individuals are aware of. You know, we don't have a blood sample to say that an individual has ADHD. This is based on clinical evaluation. So that's why it's important to have that a level of objectivity, meaning asking questions in different environments of that individual um, so that we can understand how they behave, how they perform, how they're producing in those environments. So that's one test. Now, the other part of the evaluation is seeing me. And so we call or refer to that as the subjective evaluation. So I actually have like 45 minutes of 
questions. Um, what I do differently in my practice is I send out a list, a lot of questions <laughs> to the parents. It's about 25 pages. And it talk, you know, it's asked questions in the areas of, of, of child development, pregnancy of the mom, um, you know, if there are medical problems, if there are any mental health, other mental health concerns, if they've been on medicines before. So it actually gives a history of the child's experience as it relates to medical health and mental health. And then when they come in my office, I'm already you know, aware of some of the concerns that the parent has. And so we're able to focus on what matters most. And that is for me to conduct and complete a comprehensive evaluation that looks at ADHD and actually evaluates and rules out other disorders that may look like ADHD. So it's a very comprehensive, which means a very thorough evaluation um, that is done. It usually is done between two appointments. Um, but, you know, at a second appointment, we then can discuss treatment plans or, you know, other recommendations if ADHD is not evident. So you mentioned something, Dr. Dawn, that I want to go back to. You said something about um, you're, you're also questioning to make sure that they are not struggling with something that may look like ADHD. What are some of the things that may be kind of confounding that, like that, okay, this looks like ADHD, but actually it's something else? What are some of those other factors that may be an issue? Yeah, so when I actually conduct evaluations, to keep it simple, I actually look at four areas of a person's lifestyle. Um, one is the biological factors, two, psychological factors, three, social factors, and then four, like spiritual religious factors. And so that's kind of usually my approach. Um, so when we consider biological factors that may resemble or mimic ADHD symptoms, um, I often look at um, a person's medical history. So if they are, for example, not sleeping well, um, that could actually look like ADHD because it can affect a person's inattention or energy levels. Um, thyroid um, abnormalities, even in kids, you know, unfortunately, um, they're, if they're, especially if they have a significant family history, I look at to make sure that we rule that out. Vitamin D deficiency has been in the news lately. There was a, actually um, a, a few um, studies that came out that were very prominent last year that looked at vitamin D, excuse me, insufficiency um, as it relates to ADHD. And it was known that when we have, we're not producing enough vitamin D, um, it can definitely affect a person's cognitive functioning. So again, how they think, how they process information, their level of attention and learning ability. So if you look at that, that also looks like ADHD as well. Um, and so that, that actually is very important to keep in mind, especially for health practitioners when they order blood work. Um, we also look at the family history. So if the parent or sibling, aunt, uncle, grandparent um, actually has ADHD or has been diagnosed or presumably has symptoms, um, then it's likely about a 50% chance that the, the child of the parent um, and a, usually a higher concordance rate. So basically a higher rate if the sibling has ADHD as well. Um, so that is something that we want to keep in mind. Um, some psychological factors could be how a child perceives himself in the world. So if the child is, um, is, is of a developmental stage where they're trying to identify who they are, they're trying to fit in um, behavior. So different types of behavior and how they 
engage with other individuals, how they see themselves in the world. Um, usually those kind of factors are not necessarily look as ADHD, but it's something that we want to consider. We want to uh, kind of see ourselves in the child's eyes and, and make sure that, you know, at their, their developmental age that they are able to um, understand, you know, their significance in the world, understand their defense mechanisms, if they're healthy defense mechanisms um, that they're displaying. And usually, you know, that's kind of how we process if they are doing well, you know, at their stage. But, you know, commonly it's not necessarily a risk factor for ADHD. But we do see additional risk factors when we come to social factors. So if there's any type of stressors going on in the home, um, if there's any bullying going on, you know, in the school or any other environments that this, the child is subjected to, um, you know, social factors that definitely can impact a child's ability to learn in school where they're not making good grades, they're not focusing because they're concerned about the bully that's next to them. I mean, these are really common factors. So they should definitely be considered. And then finally, um, spiritual factors. And so usually I don't necessarily, I mean, I always ask a child about their spirituality and you would be surprised at how many child would talk about that uh, or children, excuse me. Um, but usually we don't necessarily find, you know, risk factors. It's particularly more commonly seen in biological as well as social factors. Okay, got it. So yeah, so like you said, there are a lot of different things. Like I know anxiety often comes up, right? Like that it may look like ADHD, but actually the child is anxious, maybe related to bullying or something else going on in the school environment or other social environments. Yes, that's correct. And anxiety is actually one of the most common, um, what we call comorbidity. So um, uh, the very common other mental health disorder that we often see a child exhibit um, features of anxiety when they particularly may have ADHD, but it's not identified and therefore not treated. Mm. So we want to look at anxiety. We want to look at depression as well as you know behavioral disorders such as oppositional defiant disorders, conduct disorders. And then there are other disorders of mental health that are commonly associated with ADHD. So kiddos who may have or be on the autism spectrum, um, that is a common um, mental health disorder that may have ADHD symptoms, as well as Tourette's disorder or syndrome. So, you know, ADHD is not only a risk factor for other disorders, but it actually can be um, symptoms of, um, of, of a disorder as well, or in, in addition to another disorder, excuse me. Got you, got mm-hmm. you. So let's talk a little bit about um, adults, Dr. Dawn, because I do think some people um, are shocked about like adult ADHD, like, you know, there may be the thinking like, well, how could they have gone their entire life and nobody noticed that? Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk about like what the evaluation process might look like or is it different for adults who may be struggling with ADHD? It is. It's different. Um, I will say that 6.5 million children are diagnosed with ADHD. It is the most common mental health disorder in kids and adolescents. But surprisingly, there's 10 million adults that have been diagnosed with ADHD and majority are not aware, as you mentioned. Um, ADHD is recognized as a childhood disorder. 
And so with that recognition, many adults um, may assume or have been told um, that it's something that they may grow out of, even if they had it as a child, um, that it's something that even if they didn't identify it as a child, that it's something they can't encounter in adulthood. The jury is still out if, you know, you can develop ADHD symptom as an adult, especially if you didn't have it as a, ch as a child. But um, in my professional opinion, um, ADHD has always been there if you have it as an adult. So I often see adults when they actually have been through a number of divorces, they've been through a number of motor vehicle accidents, um, multiple job failures, um, and they just are kind of depressed or have anxiety disorders because they're just not uh, you know, functioning at their optimal level in life. And that can be in relationships and jobs, you know, their own personal goals. And so that's when I tend to see adults. I also see adults when their children are diagnosed. Um, and so the process is different. Um, you know, I'm not going to ask an adult's boss, you know, to fill out the forms for me because that's, you know, that is actually violating their, their privacy. But what I do offer, again, is like a subject evaluation where I actually ask a lot of questions about their history. It is very important that I recognize that they've had symptoms before the age of 12. It used to be before the age of six. And now it's before the age of 12, where, there have, where they've actually recalled problems with inattention, impulse control, and hyperactivity, and or hyperactivity. Um, and so we go all the way back to elementary school days. I ask them how they performed in school, what was their upbringing like, uh, what were some forms of concern that teachers reported on the report card. So these are some common questions they may ask. And then I actually kind of walk through their journey of life up until the current situation of what brings them into my office and what concerns they have today. And so that is the part of the subjective evaluation. And then as I stated before, the objective evaluation for me is either I can refer them out to a psychologist like yourself, or I would actually conduct the actual computerized exam in my office. And that is an immediate answer that I can receive and we can discuss results. So the subjective evaluation and the objective evaluation support one another then we have a diagnosis that we need to talk about, and that's ADHD. So that's how it works. That's really interesting, Dr. Dawn, and I think a lot of people would probably be interested in knowing more about the relationship piece, right? Because I don't think we often, I think because it typically comes up in childhood, we think about it impacting like academics, right? That's but when, right. It, when it has been missed, it definitely can cause issues in relationships. Can you talk more about that? I can. So this is not commonly discussed, so I'm so happy you raised this um, important concept because the, the interesting piece about ADHD that many of providers fail to educate patients on is that there is a mood component to ADHD. Um, you know, sometimes when I see individuals, they may present themselves as being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, with depression and anxiety. And being an ADHD expert, yes, I evaluate for all those disorders, but I always evaluate for ADHD, right? And so ADHD can actually look like symptoms of bipolar disorder. It can look like symptoms of depression as well as anxiety. So if you consider um, ADHD having a mood component, you can also understand its impact on relationships. So 
I have ADHD, all right? And I wasn't diagnosed until adulthood in my early 30s. And I had no idea. I had no idea. I actually was told that I had test-taking anxiety. I struggled in medical school. And so when I went to a psychologist, ADHD wasn't even considered because I was doing well and with my grades, I didn't fail any classes, but I just struggled with test-taking. And I was really good at oral test-taking, but not written. And so, you know, Anxiety disorder was diagnosed for me, a performance anxiety. But when I look back and I think about um, my relationships, um, I would say that I really didn't have any particular challenges with relationships, but I did notice that if I was one-on-one with something, um, with someone, then I was more keen to listen to what they were saying. Um, but if I didn't have an interest in the, con- in the conversation, then I would find myself thinking about other things, or I would, you know, plan my day in my head while the person's talking, pretending to listen. This is common for, for individuals with ADHD. So if you're an adult out there and you're wondering if you have ADHD, you know, some of the common symptoms that I often evaluate for are when you're in conversations with one another person um, and you're finding yourself not really listening, you're actually thinking about other thoughts, you have a lot of thoughts going on in your head, um, you can't remember what the person's saying, you're not giving them eye contact, you know, these are some very common symptoms um, that those with ADHD deal with on a daily basis. Others could be very being distracted by a person's environment. Um, usually when I, I'm, a, I'm a huge sports fan, and so I may watch a play, but it's usually a person in the stands on TV that I'm looking at. So we may find detailed attention to what's in the background, and this is very common with those with ADHD as well. So when we're asked about who's winning and the score and who scored that, commonly we can't answer that question because we're so focused on who's in the crowd looking at the same game that we're trying to look at. Um, and in relationships, again, you know, um, some of the things that are concerning are the the fluctuating in moods, the poor frustration tolerance when we're talking to someone that we love and, you know, we we forget that they ask us to do something or pick some dinner up, you know, after after work, you know, those are some of the things that we commonly forget. So you often find us having a lot of notes around, a lot of sticky notes around, maybe many alarms on our phone. So, you know, again, if this is something that you do automatically, you may want to um, consider being evaluated, especially if it's interfering with your relationships. At work, um, not following through the demands of your job, not completing tasks on time, you often find yourself at home doing work that was supposed to be completed during the day, you're up from your desk socializing a lot, you're drinking a lot of coffee, which is a stimulant. You know, again, some key factors and areas that may actually point to ADHD. So I'm not necessarily saying that you have it. All I'm suggesting is that these are very common day-to-day behaviors that adults don't find anything wrong. It's just kind of their sense of normalcy. But in fact, when we have ADHD and it's not necessarily obvious, these are some common um, symptoms or signs that you may find um, in a person with ADHD. And you really raised a great point, Dr. Dawn, in sharing your own, you know, like late diagnosis, right? Because I think what happens and, you know, I used to do evaluations for ADHD in my practice. I think what happens typically is people who are really high functioning and like very successful have just been able to figure out ways to manage their life 
throughout like high school and college, but then they get to somewhere like medical school or an environment that does really challenge them and all of the coping strategies that they had kind of fall apart. And now they're like, they're, they're forced to look at, okay, what actually is going on? So then that's when someone like you would come in the office and say, hey, I'm really struggling when I don't, you know, I didn't before. That's exactly right. You, I mean, you hit the nail right on the head, and that's exactly what my experience was. Um, coming from a personal experience, I actually, so, you know, the advantage point that I had was that I actually attended Montessori school. I attended magnet school. So to give you a little bit more information about those two types of settings, school settings, they're usually very creative, you know, work at your own pace as far as the Montessori school. Um, and then the magnet program is more like one-on-one teaching, higher level functioning. Um, you may actually get pulled out of class to do other type of projects. So yes, you know, it, it wasn't really obvious. I mean, I was known as a social butterfly. Um, I would get in trouble for my content, but not my grades and so yeah you know nothing was wrong I just talked a lot and the thing about girls with ADHD is that they can present differently you know usually they have a predominantly inattentive type where you're not obviously seeing them coming out of their seats or jumping on tables and things of that nature but they may actually be looking at you but not really paying attention to what you're you know what you're saying or what you're teaching so you don't even recognize that they have ADHD but they actually struggle in the areas that are not so obvious so that's, again, like talking a lot or maybe um, in their grades. But how I compensated for my deficits was that I studied a lot and I had two parents who were educators where I couldn't come home, <laughs> you know, with anything less than what my potential was. And so, you know, I had those supportive factors that, you know, actually allowed me to kind of go through throughout high school and even college, you know, attending Xavier University of Louisiana, you know, Joy, that, you know, we attended a small school, there were small classes, we had instructors, we had drill classes of smaller, even smaller classes, which reinforced the information, you know, so if I attended that school, that actually, you know, continued what my kind of magnet and private schoolings was like. But then when I went to medical school, I'm talking about a hundred page homework assignment for one class when I was taking four others at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of work and I was known to kind of rewrite my notes and I didn't know, again, another compensation. I was rewriting my notes of what I was reading, highlighting in different colors, putting tab notes everywhere. And so, again, I was compensating. Having ADHD, did not know, but study for hours and hours. So losing sleep, sacrificing time on doing other things to kind of, you know, decrease my anxiety, maybe skipping out on classes because I had to catch up on others. So it caught up to me. Mm -hmm. It caught up to me. And then, you know, again, test taking, you know, you have a lot of information to study for in medical school. And these tests are very time orchestrated and they're hard questions, in my opinion. So, you know, yeah, that's where I first struggled. That's where I first struggled. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. it was very eye opening for me. Mm hmm. So you mentioned, Dr. Dawn, that it can look different in girls, right? That, you know, a lot of times girls will present with more of the inattentive factors. I'm wondering if there are any cultural factors that we need to pay attention to. Like, is there anything um, related to Black or African-American culture that also we need to kind of be making sure we're bringing into context in this conversation? Yes, I would say that... Um I would say probably five, 10 years ago, um, you know, there was a lot of re clinical research
research studies out there that actually show that um, African-American boys were more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD um, without proper diagnosis. And the, the view on that was in relation to um, cultural insensitivities as far as black boys being very rambunctious and hyperactive or, or having overactivity in their classes or in different environments. And so they were taken to pediatricians and just given a diagnosis without, you know, any, you know, evidence-based medicine use, such as these rating scales that can actually confirm the diagnosis. So that led to a lot of black boys, unfortunately, being misdiagnosed knows, which further the stigma in the African-American community. And so um, part of that um, has basically led, you know, some African-American families not to want to pursue um, mental health disorders or even ADHD, um, even if there are some signs, real signs there. And so for the last about five years, the, the studies have shown that that actually misdiagnosis has decreased and we're actually on a, an upward journey to making sure that every person is diagnosed appropriately, um, safe measurements are used, um, management is effective, and that they're not experiencing side effects, and that it's benefiting the child because they're actually functioning optimally. Um, so that's kind of one aspect. We also saw back in about 10, 8 to 10 years ago that the ratio of boys to girls was higher um, in boys than girls. It was about a 9 to 1 ratio. Now we're seeing as of 2015 that that ratio is actually steady coming um, to equal equilibrium. So more girls are being diagnosed because we are now able to identify those certain level of inattentive symptoms that you know we have been talking about. Um, living in Texas, very diverse state. Um, I actually see patients throughout Texas through telemedicine or telepsychiatry as we call it. So I, I see patients on a monitor while they're in their doctor's office as well as Illinois. And I, I commonly um, am engaged in minority communities. And what I'm finding is that more and more minorities are coming in. Um, and a lot of teachers, and I applaud my teachers out there, you know, they can't necessarily by law suggest that a child be ADHD, but they're actually communicating with the parents more and more about their concerns that they're observing about their child in class. Um, coaches are also doing an incredible job of being educated and also talking to parents. And then even parents and grandparents are actually, you know, concerned about their child, their child's or grandchild's performance in school. So I'm seeing that the level of education um, is actually increased and people are attuned and keen to understanding this disorder a little bit better, even the minority community, um, in actually seeking treatment. So that actually um, is very gratifying to see and witness. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I do. I'm glad to hear that there is much more education around that, because, you know, when you think about it, like your child is at school for lots of hours during the day. Right. And so they, your teachers and coaches will have maybe even more experience being able to observe the child in multiple different settings to be able to give some of that diagnostic information. You're exactly right. You know, I say, you know, that's where your child spends, you know, 50% of it, his or her time. So it's just as equally as important that we actually obtain that information um, in certain classes at certain parts of the day um, with the child, considering the child's interest in the class. I mean, there's a lot of things that we need to consider that helps determine if a child is doing well. 
in a particular course. And so, you know, it can be sometimes confusing, um, but, you know, again, objective skills help us, you know, the teacher's input help us, time helps us as well in understanding if this is something that we really need to identify or look further into and then therefore manage. So let's talk now about treatment, Dr. Dawn. Um, so I know that there is lots and lots of misinformation out about medication that's used for ADHD. So I want you to talk a little bit about like the medical ways that are used to um, treat ADHD, as well as if there are other ways that you can manage ADHD symptoms that don't require medicine. Definitely. So yeah, so basically the as a psychiatrist, as a child psychiatrist, my main role is to evaluate if a medication can be helpful for a mental health condition. And so, of course, being, you know, a medical doctor, I prescribe medications for disorders. So my main form of treatment um, for ADHD would be medication. But my second, because I specialize in ADHD, I'm also an ADHD coach. So let's start with medication management first. Um, there's a, there's, two distinct classes of medications that are commonly used to manage ADHD. There are non-stimulants and there are stimulants. So the stimulant class is kind of the first line. It's kind of the first class that usually, especially providers such as myself would go to. It's a very good class of medicine. Um, there is a lot of stigma surrounding the stigmas. I mean, excuse me, the, the um, stimulant medications, mainly because in the wrong hands or if it's used inappropriately, it can cause some, you know, significant consequences, such as addictions, um, a natural high, or not natural, but a person may not necessarily respond well to it, and they may appear to be high, and it can be commonly misused as a substance. But if it's in the hands of a person who has ADHD and it's taken properly, it can really make a 180 degree difference in a person's lifestyle. And I know because that happened with me. The stimulant class is at the top of the medication chain. What I mean by that is that they're very effective in what they're designed to do. They're very efficient in meeting the goal of helping a person, assisting a person with being able to have sustained focus. An average person can focus for about 20 minutes. Now in, with social media involved, we're actually seeing that all the way down to seven minutes. Seven minutes. And so if you think about a person who has problems with their inattention, such as, or attention, such as ADHD, that actually may be cut in half to three to three to four minutes, <laughs> right? And so it's important that we manage this appropriately. The stimulant medications are quick in what they do. They're taken every day. They're in and out of the system. And um, people do fine on them if that's what they need. So stimulant medication examples would be Ritalin, um, Adderall, Focalin, Dextrin, um, Vyvanse, EBGIL. There's a host of, of stimulants out there. There's some that are actually being in studied right now. And it takes about 20 years for a medication to go through proper evaluation, studies, and trials to make sure that it's going to be a safe use of management for um, the population. So these medications are, in any medication for that matter, is studied for at least 20, on average, in 20 years. So it's very safe if it's used properly. Then we have the non-stimulant class. So the non-stimulant class is basically a class of medications that are commonly used as kind of the secondary class. Um, these medications can also be used in conjunction with someone who doesn't do very well with stimulants, or they may have other disorders that the, the the stimulants would actually, you know, impact how they function or if they're taking other medications, 
that um, may interfere and have a drug drug interaction with the stimulants, um, as well as you, usually sometimes kids do well with combination treatment. So we may have them on a stimulant and a non-stimulant to make sure that they're functioning throughout the entire day. So some examples of a non-stimulant medications would be Stratera, Clonidine, or Capvave, um, Intunib. You know, these um, work differently in the brain than the stimulants. The reason why stimulants are called stimulants is not because they stimulate people. The reason why they're called stimulants is because they stimulate certain chemicals to be released from the area of the brain that's impacted by ADHD. So remember that frontal lobe that I was talking about where you take your hand and put it to your frontal, kind of your forehead? That's the area that is found to not produce enough of certain chemicals like dopamine, norepinephrine, when a person has ADHD. So what is important about taking your medicine when you have ADHD is that you must take your medicine every day because you're not, your brain is not making enough of what it needs in order to have good focus, sustainment. So that's why it's important to take your medicine every day. And that's kind of the biological need of having a medication on board. But now about 30% of people don't respond well to stimulants. So we have other type of managements that may work. Um, we have antidepressants that may actually help with some type of impulse control. Um, we actually, and then that's medication, but we have ADHD coaching. So I actually meet with patients, um, a part of my practice as well as my brand, and we, we talk about time management skills, organizational skills. Um, we actually talk about how their days are structured. Um, I get an understanding what their day's like. You know, usually when you have ADHD, you feel like you don't have enough time, but there is enough time. You just have to structure your day to where you see that there's enough time. So there's a lot of visualization to these appointments because um, we use different parts of our brain. It's important to highlight that area. Um, there's also cognitive behavioral therapy um, that is often used with ADHD. As we stated, there can be some new components to ADHD. So we want to make sure that our anxiety is managed. If we have like mild depressive symptoms, that's managed okay. Our frustration tolerance is, you know, tolerated. Um, so CBT or, or some type of degree of therapies are very helpful. And it's also important to have individual family therapy. I mean, commonly that is not considered. But, you know, if a child is to have ADHD and they're to take medicine and the parent is not, you know, sure, they are sure, it's important for the family to be educated so they can continue to understand how they can best support their child or their family member that is living with ADHD. Because ADHD is a lifelong disorder. So you want to have like an all-star team around you. It's important to have the teachers support this. It's important to have your family members, coaches, your relationship, you know, people that you're in a relationship with. So, you know, as long as you have that support, people really can flourish when they have ADHD. So I know, Dawn, Dr. Dawn, that something that often comes up, um, like you mentioned a little earlier, is like parents having concerns actually starting their children on medication mm -hmm. and lots of worries about that. What kind of um, information would you like to offer for parents who may be, you know, afraid of starting their children on medication? Well, you know, I always talk to my parents. I meet them where they are. And I, I first start by saying, you know, I would be concerned if you were not concerned. You know, having ADHD, having a child who's diagnosed with ADHD, can be can be scary for parents. Um, hearing that this can be a lifelong disorder where potentially, you know, their son or daughter is going to be taking medication for the rest of their life can actually sound scary as well. Um, so it's important to get it right. 
And so I start off by saying, listen, we're going to do the proper way to, to diagnose this. We're going to make sure we follow all protocol to make sure that this, you know, your child has ADHD. And then let's start the conversation of how this works. And so I often draw in my sessions. I show them the picture of the brain. I draw the brain. I'm not a good drawer anyway, Joy, but I try my best. And I actually, you know, set the tone by creating a picture of what's happening in your child's brain. What happens when they have ADHD and it's not managed? And then what happens when it starts management? And I relate that to their functioning and I relate that to the areas of concerns that they're presented with. And if we were to treat ADHD, how those areas can actually improve. So that's kind of how I start. I don't enforce med you know, treatment on anyone. I educate, I promote, I encourage, um, but I want to make sure that they make an informed decision. So that's what's important, that those parents are in the driver's seat. They're going to decide for their child based upon, you know, my clinical experience, my professional experience, my personal experience, that this is a disorder that definitely needs to be managed if it is there, but there's different ways to manage it. And so, you know, again, it's a balance between meeting the parents and the child where they are and then providing professional and expertise um, that will actually promote that child's well-being to make sure that they're functioning optimally. So we address the concerns that they have. We address the concerns that they have and then we kind of go from there. So I know that you also just released a book, Dr. Yes. Dawn, um, ADH, the ADHD Lifestyle Series, Volume 1. So that leads me to believe that there will be multiple volumes in this series. But yes. I am sure that this could be a good resource for people who are struggling with this. So can you tell us a little bit more about the book? I would love to. Yes, I'm so excited. It's my first book. I've dreamt of writing, you know, a book about ADHD for too long of a time now. And so this is the first volume of one. It's the ADHD Lifestyle Series, Volume 1, Secrets from an MD with ADHD. And in Volume 1, I discuss building balanced meals and exercise routines for children. Now, as a psychiatrist, again, you know, my main management in my office is medication management, um, as well as ADHD coaching, but I am a holistic provider outside of the office. And so in my personal brand, this is what I do. I talk about other forms of, of management that are just as important as medication management. So we are talking about balanced meals. You wanna make sure that the best fuel source for the brain is basically given to your child, especially if they have ADHD. So for example, if you want to get my book, you're more than welcome to go get my book. It's at buydrdawnsbook.com. Um, but in that, protein, protein is the best fuel source for the brain. It's The brain is able to break down protein. When you eat protein, you get fuel uh, full faster. Usually I give you a, a little tidbit here. When a child has ADHD and they're on their medication management, Sometimes it's hard for them to eat or they may have appetite suppression. So I may actually suggest, hey, give your child a protein snack around 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. This is usually when they're outside of school or during the summer, they may be, you know, outside from their summer program. And you will find that their focus actually improves after they have this protein snack while the medicine is kind of going out of their system. So food supplements um, are very resourceful. Minerals, vitamins are very key to make sure that the brain is getting what it needs in order to function at its best. So there's a lot of chapters on that. And then we talk also about exercise routines for children. My favorite is karate. 
anxiety. It teaches discipline. It teaches, um, it allows you to, the child to focus on, um, you know, basically accomplishing certain goals. Um, so it's a reward system with color belts, accomplishments, so it builds confidence, self-esteem, it builds friendships as they focus on why they're there. I love karate for a person who has ADHD and it's just at the end of the day. So it's, it's best used where after they're done with their workout, they can go to sleep easier. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so, you know, I, I highlight some of those key areas outside of medicine that are just as equally as important to help manage your child's ADHD. So besides your book, Dr. Dawn, what other um, resources might you suggest for people who are wanting to maybe read more about ADHD um, or figure some of this out for their kids? Sure. I have an online TV show. Um, It's basically based off of Facebook. Um, It's basically you go to Dr. Dawn Psych MD. I actually feature at least once a week um, something in the area of ADHD and other mental health disorders. Um, I also have an upcoming podcast that I'm featuring next month. So um, it's actually catered to super moms. So super moms, in my definition, is defined as those mothers who parent children with ADHD. They're my super moms. They have all-star kids. And we basically talk about, we start by talking about them. Um, So I've done webinars, I've done um, challenges on my my Facebook lives where I address moms. It's all about moms. And moms, this is where we talk about the struggle of you feeling that you're being judged, you feel like a failure as a parent, you blame yourself. You know, we kind of talk about that, what that looks like, how you can overcome that so that you can open the door to, you know, helping your child um, basically champion their ADHD. Um, so we talk about what ADHD is, you know, some of the things we talked about today, um, Joy, um, how you can get diagnosed, what key players should be a part of your child's all-star team, um, what home routines are important, what school essentials are important to make sure that the child's succeeding, what sleep hygienes are like, the appetite hygiene. We really talk about the lifestyle of a child who has ADHD. Um, I refer to different websites um, that are found that are very resourceful. Um, Chad.org is a resourceful website. Attitude with ADD Etude Magazine, a nice resourceful website. Um, My website, Dr. Dornside MD, I have a blog on there, and I talk about nothing but ADHD. So there are a lot of resourceful websites out there where parents can learn. And I understand that it can be very confusing and complex because There is also information out there that is not necessarily evidence-based. So you want to make sure that you actually talk to your doctor um, or you talk to a mental health professional who can guide you to the right resources that can actually um, give understanding or answers to the concerns that you have in regards to ADHD. So, Dr. Dawn, you already told us your website is drdawnpsychmd.com. Are there any social media handles that you want to share where people can find you online? Yes, um, it's Dr. Dawn, so it's C-R-D-A-W-N-P-S-Y-C-H-M-D. And that, um, that's my name on my, on my social media platform. So that's Facebook, um, it's YouTube, and Instagram, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, Pinterest. Um, so I'm, I'm on all social media as um, platforms as that name, Dr. Dawn MD. Perfect. And all of that will be included in the show notes so people can find that really easily. Thank well, you. thank you so much for sharing all of your expertise with us today, Dr. Dawn. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And thank you for having me, Dr. Joy. I really appreciate um, you allowing me uh, to come on your podcast and 
basically just promote the education awareness of ADHD. Um, hopefully we dispel some myths today and as well as encourage individuals out there, whether they be young or old, that if they are concerned of having this, what I call a super ability, um, that they could actually seek help with a mental health professional and kind of go from there. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. I'm so grateful that Dr. Dawn was able to share her expertise with us today. Be sure to check out the show notes to get more information about her practice, her book, and the resources that she suggested. You can find them at therapyforblackgirls.com slash session 66. If you're looking for a therapist in your area, make sure to visit the directory at therapyforblackgirls.com slash directory. And if you want to continue this conversation and join a community of other sisters who listen to the podcast, please join us over in the Thrive Tribe at therapyforblackgirls.com slash tribe. Make sure you answer the three questions that are asked to gain entry. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. And I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care. Take good care.